The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. As 2020 begins, tonight we look at some of the important topics and people that will shape the business of government in the new year. This program features three conversations that show a roadmap for where the government's going in 2020. Leaders in national defense, government management, cybersecurity, and congressional oversight will review the work they've done and the work they and you will do this year. We begin with national defense. The Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, has indicated the agenda he pursued as Army Secretary will be the agenda he pursues as SecDef. That agenda includes cutting costs through his night court process, increasing lethality, and aligning the agency's operations and budget to the national defense strategy. When he was Army Secretary, he told my colleague Sharice Hanner how he built his agenda in collaboration with then Army Chief of Staff, now Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley. Our vision for the Army uh, that the Chief of Staff and I issued last summer says that the Army needs to prepare for high-intensity conflict against strategic competitors such as uh, Russia and China. And that's based on the national defense strategy that came out a few months prior to that. In that context, we had outlined six modernization priorities, one that begins with long-range precision fires and ends with soldier lethality. Included in there is a priority called future vertical lift. And when it comes to future vertical lift, I have uh, two clear priorities. One is to build what's called the Future Attack Reconnaissance Aircraft. It's a, it's a scout, armed scout aircraft, if you will, that can penetrate robust air defenses that we would see from the Russians and, and Chinese, and to get in deep to fight that fight. I don't have that capability now. I need to build it. The second is called the Future Long Range Assault Aircraft. It is essentially a replacement for the uh, Black Hawk helicopter, which now on average is 15 years old. Uh, and again, with both these two priorities, number one and number, number one being the FARA, number two being the future long-range assault aircraft, I need aircraft that can fly greater distances, go much faster, carry heavier payloads, and be more survivable in that type of environment. To, um, to pay for that, what we've done is, is halted funding and programs for current vertical lift programs. And uh, the, the one that comes up in the context of heavy vertical lift is called the CH-47. It's a very good aircraft. It's been in the inventory since 1962. It's had a series of upgrades over time. But in order to fund those first two programs I know I must have to fight in the future, I had to halt that. At the same time, what I've said is my third priority now would be uh, once we fully develop the, 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 the future vertical lift number one, the FARA, and number two, the FLARA, my third priority's got to be what's the future of heavy vertical lift? Can I also get from industry an aircraft that has greater speed, greater payload, greater range, and greater survivability than what the fleet does now. Uh, one of the reasons why we felt comfortable halting procurement of the CH-47 is we've met our acquisition objective with aircraft to spare for our current fleet, and that current fleet is also anywhere between six and eight years old. So it's a very young fleet. It'll be with us for many years to come, probably decades. And so we felt that we could, we, we could, we, that we could comfortably stop funding there and then shift our funding to make sure that we prepare for the future fight. And you've communicated this with industry, your needs for the future. Absolutely. We've been communicating uh, these needs for well over a year. Uh, we were very clear that we would be making changes within our budget, our FY20 budget specifically, 
to uh, shift money. The Army, uh, after a long, grueling process, moved basically $30 billion uh, in what was our previous programs into future programs in order to effect that shift towards the national defense strategy. So, and we've been very clear with the Hill as well. Uh, so we feel like we've done a lot of messaging on this front. And you mentioned the budget. How does the Army's budget fall in line with the six modernization priorities? Well, it gets back to uh, what I just said. When we went through the budget and prepared it around this time last year, what we knew we needed to do first was to fund those six priorities. And those six priorities, long-range precision fires, future vertical lift, next-generation combat vehicle, the network, integrated near-missile defense, and soldier lethality. There's about 31 programs in there. We funded those first. We have another 40 or so programs that we would also put into, into the top tier. We funded those first. And then we went, continued down that list of one through 500 plus funding programs. And at the, at the end of the day, we ended up e either eliminating, canceling, or delaying nearly 200 programs in order to pay for those priorities in the top tier. And tell me more about the counter pushback over canceling the CH-47 um, and the slowdown with the JLTV. Well, there's, uh, you know, obviously the, the company that makes uh, those aircraft wants to keep making those aircraft, and, and I understand why. But again, on the other hand, and I think most members of Congress understand that, the Army has to modernize. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the equipment that we have in the field right now are products up from, the, from the Reagan era of the 1980s, the Bradley, the Abrams, the Apache, the Blackhawk, et cetera. And the Chinook's even older than that by, by a good 20 years. So we need to move to the next generation of technologies when it comes to aircraft for both the FARA and FLARA. We want to build systems that not only have those attributes I spoke to, but can also be flown either semi-autonomously or autonomously. And again, these are all attributes that in, in some ways the, the current fleet of uh, aircraft don't have right now. So uh, understandably, there's some pushback. What I've said to industry is, look, meet me in the future. We can't hold on to the past. We can't keep making incremental upgrades here and there. Uh, in order to fight and win in the future, to protect our soldiers, to win, we got to get to the next generation of aircraft. The technology is out there, and uh, that's where I need them to come meet me. There's more of that conversation with the now Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, at GovMatters.tv. Straight ahead, bringing outside voices into government management. The Gear Center will drive that dynamic in 2020. You'll learn how next when Government Matters continues. Welcome back. The Office of Management and Budget will use a new center to connect with the private sector and academia to improve government operations. The Government Effectiveness Advanced Research Center is working with three grand prize winners and more honorable mention winners to make those connections grow. Deputy Director for Management Margaret Weikert explained her vision for the Gear Center and how it will work with the winners. Uh, the GEAR Center was a concept that we introduced in the uh, Reform and Reorganization Plan last fall, or excuse me, last spring in 2018. And the notion was we need to generate public-private uh, partnerships and also bring academics into the fold around creating innovative solutions for the management agenda, whether it's IT modernization, data or the workforce the the first step is the award is these awards of this challenge how did you set the challenge up what did you want it to, to give you so we wanted to get out of the gate quickly and we're still working to set up a legal entity that can do this type of thing on an ongoing basis but we chose the challenge format 
in order to get out of the gate and showcase the type of project that we think a gear center could really catalyze. Um, and so we, we created a, a very small uh, initial phase. They're, they're very modest grants. But what we're able to showcase is the three projects that are winners are really impactful. One of my favorites is uh, the, the notion of the cyber uh, security workforce collaboration that's using learning about neurodiverse individuals, individuals largely with autism, mm -hmm. and how well suited they are for the cyber security mission. And actually finding out how do we use um, this program to make them very effective workers on that cybersecurity mission. The other two winners, data for impact and data and evidence for government and academic impact. Data, of course, one of the three pillars, as you mentioned, PMA. Nobody should be surprised that this is where you're focused, right? Absolutely. And we did set out and focus very specifically on commercialization of data and the workforce and reskilling of the workforce and innovations around uh, the workforce dynamic. And in each of these, you actually see data, people, and IT working together. And some of the, the participants here are really, truly diverse. You've got uh, SAP from the private sector. You've got FFRDCs like MITRE. You've got Volcker, a good government group. And then you've got a host of uh, academic institutions from Johns Hopkins to Mercyhurst uh, University in, in northwestern Pennsylvania that are really showcasing the breadth of innovation around our country. Uh, the Volcker Alliance is focused on a lot of activity in Kansas City. Um, so really bringing everyone into this process. Five honorable mentions, pop-up data marketplaces, reskilling, credentialing, data for improving outcomes, grants management via blo uh, blockchain. What happens to those ideas? Just a pat on the back and a thank you, or does something happen with those? Well, the, the notion that we have with the Gear Center is that it's a, it's a catalytic engine. Mm. And so we want to actually uh, use money as a signal, but it's not the only signal. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're giving honorable mentions to these very worthy projects as well is saying this is exactly the kind of thing we need to do hundreds, if not thousands, of projects like this that are bringing together diverse groups of people. And so it was an incredibly difficult set of decisions because we had over 50 really strong proposals and these are the ones we're highlighting mm -hmm. but our hope is once we get the gear center fully launched we could fund with uh, capital that would come in from the private sector as well as from grants and other funding sources from the government as many projects as could have real impact so that that's really the end goal so other funding sources from the government where do you want to put this in a line item in 2020 uh, or 2021 to try to be able to scale this so basically we we got the money for the initial catalytic activity from the cross-agency priority goal funding source which is a pass-the-hat mechanism from CFO Act agencies we are not asking for incremental appropriated funds because the goal is ultimately to make this self-sustaining you know in the same way as we have in our military or our intelligence missions there's a lot of at-risk private capital going towards research and development because they know 
ultimately the Department of Defense or the intelligence community will use the, the innovations and that will provide an economic incentive for that to go on. We're trying to catalyze that type of at-risk private sector investment. We just have a couple of minutes left, Margaret. I want to change topics. It's time for the lightning round part okay. of our conversation. Um, you're about to lose one of your jobs yes. if uh, if uh, events proceed as we expect. The uh, title of acting OPM director. A couple of members of Congress have said they're not sure about this. Republicans and Democrats, and some Democrats have said we want to try to stop this altogether. Where does that stand right now? The merger of OPM into GSA. Uh, so, what we have said and and what uh, at some level is a little mystifying to me in that people haven't really heard is the compelling need for transformation of our workforce to meet the mission needs of the 21st century is something we can't pause, we can't stop. We need to continue to move uh, to be able to handle that mission and handle it efficiently and effectively. And, and what's a challenge is what we're trying to achieve is what most state governments already do. They already serve these missions around people and buildings and fleet management and procurement in an integrated fashion. I'm actually heading in a couple of weeks to a meeting of state uh, management administrators, effectively the people who run these combined agencies. And most of the states around, around this country actually do it this way. Mm -hmm. Less than a minute, uh, Artificial Intelligence Summit at the White House this week. What's your takeaway from that? Uh, it was a wonderful event. We had uh, about 250 folks from the private sector, from academia, and from the federal government. And we actually showcased what the federal government is already doing to deploy artificial intelligence. We had a lot of really uh, compelling examples, a lot of good ideas. We talked about a lot of the policy considerations that we need to incorporate as we move forward. But it was a very strong exchange of dialogues and um, uh, you know, a really uh, exciting thing to be a part of. You can watch that conversation again at GovMatters.tv. When we come back, a congressional eye on cybersecurity. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the leaders of Congress's newest cyber commission. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, GovMatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The first deadline for Congress's Cyberspace Solarium Commission is February 20th, 2020. The Hill newspaper reports former Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security, Suzanne Spaulding, says the commission's trying to cover, quote, everything, frankly, short of war. The co-chairs of the commission are Senator Angus King of Maine and Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. On a visit to Capitol Hill, I asked them to explain the mission they've undertaken and why it matters. We are tasked with taking a step back and looking at where we are in cyberspace and developing an assessment of our policy. And really, I think what's unique about the commission is that we're combining a legislative perspective with myself, Angus King, and two of our congressional colleagues with the executive branch perspective and then the perspective of outside experts. And so we're very excited about the ability to effectuate and affect policy going forward. 
This commission, Senator, includes uh, the heads of the deputy heads of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Homeland Security, Defense Department, Federal Bureau of Investigation. You've really got all the cyber power players from the executive right. branch involved there, don't and you? And we've got some very strong players from the private sector. And the, the whole idea is to try to develop a comprehensive cyber doctrine or strategy for the country. We really haven't had one, and we're trying to find a way to, to deal with this issue on a whole host of levels because it is a huge issue. I mean, I'm sure your viewers are aware, but we're under threat. I, I just talked to somebody this morning from a, a, a private uh, nonprofit, fairly large one, 100,000 pings a week of people trying to break into their system. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a, a lab, let alone banks, telecommunications. This is a really serious problem, and we need to get out ahead of it. Congressman, you uh, told the Washington Post recently, we can inject ideas immediately into the legislative bloodstream. What do you mean by that? What do you foresee that looking like, or does that remain to be seen based on what you learn as a result of this commission? Well, I think that's one of the benefits of having four sitting members of Congress on the commission, which is unique among outside commissions. They tend to be comprised of outside experts exclusively. But theoretically, we would love for our final report, uh, not only, as, as Angus rightfully said, to lay out what is our doctrine, but also to tee up a variety of legislative proposals that he and I and our colleagues in Congress can immediately start trying to uh, get passed and put into the National Defense Authorization Act. And so while it's too early to tell where exactly we're going to land in terms of the outcome of the competitive process, I, I think we both share the, the view that we want this to be a mechanism for real action and positive change within the federal government. Is that, Senator, what you think gives this commission potential to have some juice that this is not just going to be a report, looks great, reads great, people agree with it, and it goes on a shelf and nothing happens? Well, that, I think the, the structure is part of that answer, and I think that's exactly why we, you know, th who knows what the legislative process is going to look like, but Mike and I are both on our respective armed services committee, I'm on the intelligence committee, and I think we, we will have an opportunity now, it may not be all legislation. There may be pieces of it that are uh, executive orders or regulations within the department. Uh, and a lot of it, uh, frankly, one of our biggest challenges is what is the relationship between the federal government and the private sector when it's the private sector that is the is the biggest target, frankly, mm -hmm. in in the whole area of cyber. So how do we, you know, how, how does that relationship work? Because historically, it's been, you know, somewhat prickly. And so we want to try to work through that. One of our key members of our commission is Tom Fanning, who's head of the Southern Company, a major utility. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a big part of the discussion that we're having right now. It's, it strikes me as particularly useful because those are the kinds of companies that are interacting with the various uh, cyber infrastructure organizations inside the individual agencies. Energy Department has one now, Caesar and, and others. Um, is that the kind of thing that you want to learn more about to see what that interaction looks like between public and private sector now so that you have a sense of how that should move forward, Congressman? I, I believe so. I mean, we've had a lot of meetings focused on this issue of public sector, private sector cooperation. What's the right framework for that? How much of this needs to be specified in statute versus how much of this is just norms of behavior uh, and levels of cooperation uh, that develop over time? Uh, and I think the fact is, another thing we're dealing with is that a lot of the talent in this space, some of our best cyber warriors, for lack of a better term, are actually going into the private sector. And so, it raises the question, do we need a more flexible model through which people like that can serve for a period of time mm -hmm. with the military? And certainly we need to make sure there's not a cultural gap 
between the best and the brightest in Silicon Valley and those who wear the uniform in the Pentagon. We need them to be working together cooperatively to keep the country safe in cyber. Senator, you, in that same post story I mentioned earlier, you said, to be honest, till 2016, I don't think we took this sufficiently seriously. We didn't realize the extent of the threat. Was it the election in 2016 that caused you to say that? OPM breach, something I think, else? I think it was the election. I mean, people heard about OPM. It was a you know, front-page story for a day or two, and then it disappeared. But the, the degree, the comprehensiveness, the depth of the Russian intervention in the, in the 2016 election, I think, is what really sort of brought this issue to the fore, uh, because they weren't attacking just anything. They were attacking the fundamental element of our democracy. And we're now going to be facing that again in 2020. But it also has surfaced all of these other challenges uh, to the electric grid, the financial system, telecommunications. And here's what keeps me awake at night. We're moving into 5G and the Internet of Things. So the, the, I think it's called the target surface mm -hmm. is getting bigger and bigger. And the ability, uh, you know, the good news is we're the most wired society in the world. That's also the bad news because that means we're the most vulnerable. So I think 16 sort of brought it to the top of people's minds. And now, but, but I should emphasize, our, our uh, uh, program, our, our project is not about the election. It's not about relitigating the election, what the Russians did. It's about cyber in general and all of its manifestations and the fact that we have to do a better job of defending ourselves. Uh, about 30 seconds left. I'd like feedback from both of you. What's a good result from this commission? What will make you happy that you accomplished? Well, I think a report uh, that is in plain language specifies what direction we need to go and captures the attention of not only the executive branch, but the American people on the urgency of this threat and what we need to do to meet it effectively. Senator? I, I think Mike stated it very well. Uh, what we want is results. We're, we're spending a huge amount of time and effort on this. Uh, I don't want to do it just to put a report on, on, a, <laughs> on a shelf somewhere. We, we want to have some results. We've got to have results. This problem is too urgent, too important, and too overwhelming, frankly, uh, to not do a better job of a comprehensive uh, defense of this country. Uh, if we don't do it, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a catastrophe. You can watch that conversation again at GovMatters.tv. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. 
using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.